0: We return this morning to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 6, our third time in that chapter, this very lengthy chapter and this monumental sermon of the Lord Jesus after he's performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000 men. John chapter 6, we won't read the uh, miracle of feeding the 5,000 men plus women and children from the five small loaves and two fish, um, but that happens across the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and then Jesus comes back over to the <clears throat> more common side, to the western side, and um, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum, we learn, and uh, there are some of the same people who saw the miracle speak to Jesus. We'll pick it up at verse 25. And then this morning we'll concentrate on verse 41 and following. But let's reread what we read Sunday night. Uh, John 6 at verse 25, the word of the Lord. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food... Which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now we focus on this part here to the end. Verse 41. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead." This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. There we end the reading of God's holy word, and we will bow to ask him for his blessing on that word. O living Father, we are grateful for your holy word and for the moving of your spirit 500 years ago to lead the church back to the scriptures as the sole source of authority. And in studying the word, to bow to the clear truth that salvation is from above, that it's all of God, that it's all of grace. We are thankful to be children of the Reformation. And to have been taught by our parents and our spiritual forefathers of the trustworthiness of your word. And therefore, to learn in your word the trustworthiness of the gospel of Christ Jesus. That we may stake our lives upon it. And we are so grateful, God, to be delivered from the bondage of working our way towards you. A futile task to know the free and wonderful grace that there is life freely given in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you for this glorious passage before us this morning. We pray it would be the word of life to us now. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Congregation of Christ, there are crisis moments in life. There are defining moments. There are turning points where something happens and things can never be the same way again. And we're familiar with that in regard to nations and Warfare, we think of Pearl Harbor and the attack there changed everything for the United States. It was, a, it was a defining moment, a decisive moment. We think of the Hamas attacks on Israel recently and their brutality and the leaders of Israel saying things will never be the same again. We're going to take actions and it will go down in history. It's not just in terms of world politics that this happens. It's also in terms of the, the Christian church, that there are decisive moments and defining moments One historian, Mark Knoll, has written a book called Turning Points, decisive moments in the history of Christianity. Decisive moments in Christianity. He begins in the first chapter with the the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and the second chapter with the Council of Nicaea in 325, and on and on. These these landmark moments here that that change the direction of the church forever. But it's not just in politics. It's not just in the church at large. It's also in personal relationships, isn't it, that there are defining moments. Mark Johnston has a little commentary on on John, which which I would recommend. It's a good little book. He writes that relationships are never static. They're always on the move and developing for better or worse. Whether it's the relationship on the playground or a courtship that might end in marriage, things are, are always, he says, they're always moving either towards commitment or to collapse. Nothing stays the same. Now, that's interesting, right, as we come to John chapter 6, because at the beginning of the chapter, we have some 5,000 men around Jesus with women and children as well, presumably, and so maybe fifteen or 20,000 people gathered around Christ. At the end of the chapter, Christ appears alone with his 12 disciples. At the beginning, after Christ has fed them, they want to come and make him king. At the end of the chapter, they want nothing to do with him. And it's not because Christ is some Hamas terrorist who wants to take their lives. It's because actually Christ said he wants to give his flesh for their lives. And so we come to a decisive moment. To a critical juncture in the lives of these disciples following Jesus. To a critical juncture in the ministry of the Lord Jesus now. We come to a a turning point in this long and glorious sermon that Christ preaches. Because it divides the people. This morning Christ proclaims that he alone is salvation. He is the bread of life. And he teaches us three important truths. Number one, that no one is able to bring himself to Christ. No one is able. The Father must do it. Number two, no one has life without coming to Christ. There's no life without union with Christ by faith. And number three, that no one remains neutral before Christ. When the claims of Christ are, are proclaimed, everyone is separated to one side or another, but no one remains neutral on the fence before the claims of Jesus. Let's look at those truths. Number one, no one brings himself to Christ. We pick it up at verse 41, where the Jews are complaining because Christ said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they say, how can that be? We know where you came from. We know your mom and dad. They're offended because Christ looks too plain and ordinary. He's He looks like them. He's he's a man. He's a weak and a lowly man. And he's claiming to have come from heaven. Christ had made bold claims earlier. He had said that he who believes in me, that that he won't hunger. He won't thirst. I'm the eternal satisfaction, Jesus said. I am life. I'm what you need. I will raise you up from the dead. And now before these, these glorious claims, they're saying, are you for real? I mean, look at who you are. You're just one of us. We grew up with you. We know you. And yet, Christ is not surprised by this murmuring. He tells them that they're not going to arrive at the truth by complaining. And then he says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Christ is not surprised that they don't get it, that they don't see it. He says, it can't be otherwise, in fact, Christ says. No one believes on me. No one beholds my glory. No one recognizes that I'm the Son of God come in human flesh unless the Father gives eyes to see because everyone else is blind and dead in sin. The Son of God comes down from heaven. He assumes our nature. The gospel is being preached by him now. But no one believes it unless God draws him. The Jews might have begun to think, you know, we're all agreed on this. We all know where he came from. Can we be wrong? And they were bold in their unbelief. And Jesus is saying that your unbelief is not the determining factor here. And maybe we sometimes are unsettled by the unbelief, right? Do you ever look around the world and you think, oh, so all these great scientists, these great minds, and they, they don't see anything of value or worth in the Bible or in Jesus. Are we alone, right? And maybe we're troubled by the unbelief of the world. Usually when somebody finds something of value, the world comes running, right? It's a gold rush. Somebody discovers something of value and everybody wants in on it. And here we have found the greatest value in all of the world and people shrug their shoulders around us. And we might be tempted to think, maybe we're not seeing this right. But the words of Jesus are helpful. Jesus says, no, no one of himself can see the value of me. Only when the Father draws him. And the word that Jesus uses there in verse 44, draw him, is actually a pretty powerful word. It's the idea of of dragging. It's the word that's used in the book of Acts, chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are seized and dragged into the marketplace before the rulers. And it's the same word that's used in the Gospel of John in chapter 21 after Christ's resurrection when the disciples are fishing and Christ tells them to throw the net onto the other side and they do and then they were not able to drag or haul the net out of the water with all the fish. And yet as we look at this whole chapter and the whole of God's word we know that the drawing of the Father is not that he just treats us like mindless fish and wraps us in a net and drags us to Jesus Well, you can read the Canons of Dort. It has so many beautiful expressions, as it points out, that God does not coerce an unwilling will, but he makes our wills willing. He renews us. He reforms us. He recreates us. He breathes life into us, so we come to Christ willingly, and we, from the heart, believe on him. That's the great work of the Father's drawing. And that's the only hope for God's people, that God would do this. Jesus says in verse 45, as he quotes from Isaiah, He says, it's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. The great promise in Isaiah of the restoration of the church is that God would become a teacher and teach the hearts of his people, and then they would come to him. So we, this morning, are reminded to be very careful not to pat ourselves on the back or attribute to ourselves what can be attributed only to God that he has drawn us to Christ. We can't boast in some noble free will and in our great wisdom that we saw who Jesus was. We recognize. No, we have to fall down and say, Lord, but, but for your mercies to me, my heart is heart, my eyes are blind. I would very much reject Jesus if you had not worked in my life. But the wonder this morning is, as we assemble as the Church of Christ, is that we are the people who confess God has touched our lives. You ever think about that? That for every Christian, sometimes we feel, you know, that this is all kind of far off. It's not very personal. But we ought to stop and recognize that if you believe on Jesus Christ this morning, then the living God has touched your life, right? People are often enamored with being close to greatness, right? Maybe they bought a house where a certain celebrity lived. This is the very bedroom that they slept in. Or I went to Covenant College, Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Well, it had been a a hotel, famous hotel, the Castle in the Clouds, and it was it was rumored that a certain celebrity had 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 been there. People like that kind of thing. Or different analogy. Remember a, a man telling me he'd been baptized by a famous reform minister. It was that reform minister who put the water on my head? But what is all of that compared to this? that the Father himself has drawn us to Christ, that the living God has personally touched your life with the mighty power of his spirit to open your heart and to bring you to Christ. What an amazing thing that he's breathed new life into us. We speak of irresistible grace or effectual calling. And so everyone of the elect will personally, by the personal God, be made a partaker of faith in Christ Jesus. And if the Spirit did not work in us, we'd feel utterly justified, as these Jews did, in rejecting Jesus. Isn't it remarkable here that Christ doesn't even try to argue with these people? I mean, wouldn't you expect when they say, hey, how can you say I came down from heaven? We, we know your mom and dad. Wouldn't you expect Jesus to say, well, let me tell you, you know, I know you know my mom Mary, but Joseph really wasn't the one, you know, the Holy Spirit came on her and I came. He doesn't do any of that, does he? Because they're not actually asking Christ any questions here. They're murmuring and complaining. They're not coming to Christ seeking understanding. They're not coming to Jesus in humility, wanting to be taught by him. They are opposing him with hardness of heart. Not every objection the world brings against Christ needs to be answered by you, right? I mean, we're called to be apologists and defenders of the faith. But there are times when the world is simply hardening their own hearts against Christ and not seeking understanding. But if anyone is taught by God, he arrives at one in the same place as everyone else who's been taught by God. Because notice what our Savior says there in verse 45. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. As we receive a sister in a membership here this morning, we're reminded that we, though we all believe on Jesus, we are different individuals and we come along different pathways, don't we? But isn't it remarkable that everyone who's taught by God arrives at the same place, not at IRC, but at the feet of Jesus. Everyone. If you are not at Christ, in Christ, then you're not taught by God. Because if you're taught by God, you always arrive at the same place as all the other people taught by God. You come to Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter when people say, well, we believe certain parts of the Bible or some religions say we believe the Old Testament or whatever. If you're not at the feet of Jesus, you have not been taught by God. But all of God's gracious workings lead to the same place, to his beloved son. And how we rejoice this morning that though we could never bring ourselves to Christ, God has done that. So number one, no one brings himself to Christ. But secondly, no one has life without Christ, without being united to Christ by faith. This is why it's so essential that we are taught by God and brought to Christ. There's no life outside of Christ. And Jesus says it again, what he had said in the passage we were read last Sunday night. And reread, he says, I'm the bread of life. And then a couple of verses later, he says it again, I'm the living bread. And as we noted last Sunday night, bread is a fitting metaphor because it's a staple of life. And all the more in Jesus' day when they didn't have 1,500 varieties of food in the grocery store, you live by bread. If you don't have bread, you die. Bread is life, bread is essential. And now Christ is saying, I am the bread by which you live eternally. And what a glorious revelation of Christ here. He he says that he's the bread that has come down from heaven. None of us do our grocery shopping in heaven, do we? Because we don't have spacecraft, because we don't know where any stores are there, because we can't get to God's heaven. Bread from heaven comes down from heaven. The man in the wilderness was not something the people created. It, It was a gift bestowed on them. Jesus is saying that what the manna was was just typical. It was pointing ahead to me, the bread that has descended from heaven. You didn't rise up to grab it. You didn't get yourself there to claim it. It was bestowed upon you as a gift. Salvation is God's provision. This is why it's a joy to be a Christian. Not only for what we rejoice in the gospel, but we get to preach to the world. We get to tell the world that that though there is no free lunch anywhere else in all of the world, there is free salvation, bread for eternal life, freely given to sinners by Jesus Christ. And what is this bread? It's the Son of God, born of a woman, takes up our flesh. You can't know the Father except through the Son. And now Christ is teaching that you can't know the Son except to know him in the flesh. Now this is the thing they're stumbling over, right? The flesh. They're stumbling over the flesh. If if he is really this son of God, this glorious one who can who can give them eternal life, they expect him to look more glorious, right? But what they see before them is another man. Nothing special about him, outwardly speaking. He's weak. He's flesh. And yet they're stumbling over the very thing that's essential. Because if he wasn't flesh, he wouldn't be their savior. He had to be flesh. He had to come in human nature to die in our place. So Jesus says in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of Of the world. What do you think Jesus is talking about? That he's going to give his flesh for the life of the world. Well, he's talking about the cross, isn't he? That he will give his body to be nailed to a cross, he will give his back to be ripped open, he will will give his soul to the anguish of hell. He will suffer the Son of God in our human nature, giving his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. For the life of the world, he says. Now the Jews are starting to catch on. If he's the bread from heaven, we have to eat the bread. And now he's telling us the bread is his flesh. Verse 52, therefore the Jews quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And now you'd expect Jesus to say, okay, I said flesh, but what I really meant is this. You don't have to eat my, it's not what he does. Jesus doubles down, verse 53. Most assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Sounds barbaric. Maybe you know that the early Christians were accused of cannibalism. Because they talked about eating the body of Jesus, right? The Lord's Supper. And they read passages like this. Cannibals. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about believing on him. Back in verse 35, he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, he who believes in me shall never thirst. Then our text this morning at verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He's talking about faith. why is he talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Some people, a lot of people, have, I believe, very wrongly thought he's talking about the Lord's Supper here. I don't think that's it at all. He's not referencing the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper hasn't even been instituted at this point in Christ's ministry. Those who go that direction often end up in weird places about the sacrament as if it really was the body of Jesus. He's talking about believing on him. But why does he use this language, eating his flesh and drinking his blood? Because Jesus is telling us that you can't be saved by a casual relationship with Jesus. You can't be saved just by sitting in a, a church pew. You can't be saved just by having some religion. Think of your relationship to your supper. You can't be fed by sniffing it, right? You come home from work, man, and it smells good in the house. Are you satisfied with sniffing it? Can you live by sniffing it? Do you sit down before a plate of food and you just smell it and it nourishes you? No, you have to take it. You have to put it in your mouth. You have to chew it. You have to swallow it. You have to digest it. You have to assimilate it. And then it is life for your body, And Jesus is saying, you can't be saved by having Christ at arm's length. You can't be saved by having Christ at a distance from you. You must, by faith, take hold of him. You must, by faith, be united to Jesus. You must, by the living bond of faith, have communion with Christ, such that his life is in you, and you are in him, and then he is your eternal life. Again, the Jews can't accept a Savior who's clothed in human nature. Christ is saying there is no Savior but one clothed in human nature. Who else can die for your sin but the Son of God clothed in human nature? You must receive him as the one who descended from heaven and took up your broken nature to die in your place and to live again and give you life. But this is the great stumbling block, isn't it? This is the great stumbling block. The cross of Christ, the weakness of his humanity hanging on a cross... And Jesus is saying here, unless you take and eat the whole Christ, Christ in his humiliation, Christ in his beatings, Christ in his dripping blood, Christ in his anguish, if you won't have that Christ, the whole Christ, God and man, the whole Jesus, even in his sufferings, then you will not have Christ. You don't have Christ, you won't be saved. So many stumble over this because they don't want the cross of Jesus. They don't want weakness. Give me a Savior who's glorious because I'm pretty glorious. And Christ says, no, you need a Savior that dies because you deserve to die. And so Christ gives this rather enigmatic statement, doesn't he? As he proclaims that there's no life outside of him. So the passage is not about the Lord's Supper, first of all, but John Calvin makes this great summary statement about the eating and drinking. He writes, the perpetual and ordinary manner of eating of the flesh of Christ, which is done by faith only, that's what this is about, and yet at the same time I acknowledge that there's nothing said here that is not figuratively represented and actually bestowed on believers in the Lord's Supper. And Christ even intended that the Holy Supper should be, as it were, a seal and confirmation of the sermon. So the passage is not about the Lord's Supper, but when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it symbolically represents the very thing Christ is saying here, that you have to take Christ and eat. You have to believe on him and trust his promises and take them to heart. And the Lord's Supper is a very seal, confirmation upon these words. Well, finally this morning, no one can remain, remain neutral before Christ. We can't bring ourselves to Christ, yet we must come to Christ if we would live. And finally, no one can remain neutral before Christ. Preachers sometimes feel that sermons should be judged by the effect they have, right? And people listening to sermons feel that way sometimes too, right? So uh, I've heard preachers, and maybe you have too, who proclaim, God must be blessing us. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Well, Jesus was a pretty lousy preacher, I guess. Because in his great sermon, this turning point in his ministry, when he begins to proclaim in the clearest of terms now, though he had veiled who he was before in different ways, now he in clear terms declares that I am eternal life, I am the Son of God, I am the bread from heaven, eat of me. In this sermon, people turn away. Their hearts are hard. And they say the saying is hard. This is a hard word. But no, their hearts are hard. It's interesting that in the Gospel of John, we don't have parables. You know, in the Synoptic Gospels, the other three, we have lots of parables. And those parables have an interesting way of working, Jesus tells us. They hide the truth from those who are hard. And they open the truth to those who are willing to come to Christ. In the Gospel of John, we don't have parables, but we have these enigmatic statements that Jesus gives. Some of them are the I am statements, I am the bread of life. We have these, these words Christ speaks that if your heart is humble and you're believing, they, they draw you in to investigate and to say, Lord, teach me. And if your heart is hard, they offend you and drive you away. And that's what's happening here. Jesus says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And so verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. It's astounding, isn't it? You say, how hard is the human heart? Here you have the Son of God, the glorious one, who doesn't need us, who didn't need to be bothered with us in our sin. The glorious Son of God comes down from heaven and he assumes our nature and its broken condition in order that he on the cross can offer his flesh as the sacrifice for our sins. And at the very moment, he now more clear than ever before is revealing this, at this very moment, they despise him. You know, we get offended when somebody turns from us and we say, I can't believe they did that to me after all I did for them. Son of God rejected. And we're reminded, aren't we, that before Christ claims that no one remains neutral, because the revelation here, it forces a response. I you wonder know how many times we've wandered into church and thought of Christian worship as a rather tame activity, and I'm going to try to stay awake. And the Bible tells us that what we do in church is a terribly dangerous thing—terribly dangerous, because the Word of Jesus Christ is preached. And when the Word of Christ is preached, there's there's always an activity that's taking place. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says in chapter 2 that we we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? That's no, the word of an apostle. Saying, I go forward representing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And it's this, this fragrance. Some people just smell the stench of death, a loser on a cross. And some smell the sweetest smell. It's the smell of life and victory. The very same message to one, it's death. To another, it's life. It's the smell of death leading to their death. It's the smell of life leading to their life. Who is sufficient to preach this word, he says? No Christian minister is an apostle, but he has the same gospel, right? And so we ought to believe that the same thing happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached today that it causes some to live and some to die, that it draws some near to Christ for eternal life and it drives others away from Jesus. But as the claims of Christ are pressed, no one remains in the same spot they were before they heard the claims of Christ. Pretty easy to hang out with a Jesus. Who you think is just a nice guy and feeds you a free lunch. That was the miracle on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But when he stands up now and says, eat of me or you die. My flesh is your life. Well, now you've got to choose sides. So many depart. And at least one hypocrite hangs around. Judas. Judas. Hangs out in the church, even though he doesn't believe. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Do you also want to leave? He says to his 12 disciples, Do you also want to go away from me? And Simon Peter answers the Simon Peter we often criticize for being so rash and hasty and uttering foolish words. Simon Peter answers with the most humble and wonderful words. Verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Remember the gospel of John began, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him. Christ is the word of God, the son of God is the word of God. He spoke this word world into existence but he's also the word of salvation the word of redemption and only out of the mouth of christ do we have life peter says you have the words of eternal life you are that word of eternal life we have come to believe and know that you are the christ the son of the living god Remember, that's the whole emphasis of this Gospel of John. All the way to the end when John would say that Jesus did many other things, but these are written that you may believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And here again in the Gospel of John, we have, the, we have that coming to the forefront. Peter says, we've recognized you. We know who you are. You're the Son of God. You're the Christ. You're the Savior in whom we have life. A glorious confession. All the world can leave you. But Lord, I would not leave you for anything. Where else could I go? Do you ever ask yourself that question when you're tempted to doubt or turn away? Where else would you go? Hamas is looking for some good terrorists. Do they have the words of life? Do you want to to join them? Would you go to, to Muslim lands to take up Islam? Would you hear the word of life there? Will you dial up your favorite celebrity? Text your favorite music artist? Does it sound like they're singing about the words of life? Would you go to Washington and seek out a politician? Some of them know the words of life. Many do not. Who can give us life but Christ Jesus This morning we have so much to be grateful for, don't we, as we see the Lord Jesus Christ with such a magnetic draw for some, but such a repulsive power for others. The mercy of the Lord God that he's drawn us to the Savior. And we this morning by faith are able to say with Peter, to whom else shall we go? Lord, bring us to your feet. Bring us to your word. Speak, Lord, the word of life. And this is the joy of Christian worship, that we assemble as God's people in all of our desperate neediness. And we say, Lord, give us the word of life. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, a great drawer of broken and rebellious sinners to the Lord Jesus, we give you praise. That you have sought us and you have found us and you have brought us, giving us renewed hearts and new eyes to see and faith to believe that Jesus Christ, even in his humiliation, even in his suffering, that he is our Savior. Father, grant us the mouth of faith. We may chew upon Jesus, not with teeth, but with faith, with the soul that believes the words you've spoken, and nourish us with Christ, we pray, that his life, the life of the whole Christ, God and man, and all of his work, and all of his suffering, and all of his rising, may be in us. We may have power over the devil and over sin. We may know the joy of forgiveness that Christ offered his flesh for us, and that we may rejoice. Father, help us never to leave Jesus, but to say with Peter, to whom else shall we go? may be clear to us this morning, may become strikingly clearer to us in all of our trials and troubles. And even, O Lord, as we grow older and think about our own death, may we believe that in Christ is life, that he will raise us up at the last day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.